This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class at IMG Academy about the First and Second Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, taught by John Previs, visiting professor at University of South Florida, Sarasota Manatee. All right, gentlemen, this afternoon we're going to be looking at the Ten Amendments to the Constitution, which are called collectively the Bill of Rights. It's the third part of the Constitution. And gentlemen, the Bill of Rights is unquestionably the shining beacon in a world of darkness because it really says to the world, as it has over the last 200 years, that America is an exceptional country, that America is a company, is a country that provides, okay, and considers the rights of its citizens, the rights of its inhabitants before anything. And so what we're going to look at this afternoon are going to be, um, hopefully I'll be able to cover all 10 of the amendments. But as you see, when we get into them, you're going to find the amendments are incredibly easy to read. The words, even though they were written 200, over 200 years ago, the words make sense. But the problem, gentlemen, is in the interpretation of those words. What do those words mean? And here, we worked a long time at the beginning of this course looking at liberal and conservative philosophies. And how you look at these amendments is determined to a great deal by your philosophical, your political perspective. Do you look at these amendments through liberal eyes? You see them one way. You look at them through conservative eyes, you see them another way. And gentlemen, it's very relevant today because a lot of the issues that we're going to find this look at this afternoon in the Bill of Rights are literally tearing this country to some degree apart. Divide people. Divide friends. Divide families even over some of these issues that we're going to look at in the, in, the, uh, um, in the Bill of Rights. So before I begin with the First Amendment, what I'd like to do is just give you a real quick overview of the Constitution. Very, very quick, very brief. Constitution has three parts to it. But first of all, what's a simple definition of a Constitution? quick and easy. It's simply a plan of government. It sets out the rules by which the federal government will operate. It's, you're all in sports. The Constitution, gentlemen, is they're the rules of the game. They're how you play the game. And the Constitution has three essential parts. The first is the preamble. How many of you had to memorize the preamble in middle school or high school? Okay. What is the preamble? Not what does it say, but what is it? Yes, sir. It's all right, Jeremy, take it a little bit more than that. It is the introduction. What does it contain in that introduction? 
Well, look at it. Give me a couple of the main points in the preamble. To establish justice. Establish justice, okay? So what it's telling you, ensure the domestic tranquility. Establish justice. What else? Provide for the common welfare. Provide for the common defense. It's basically the preamble contains the vision. The vision of the framers for what kind of a country they wanted to see America be. A country where there's justice for everybody. A country, depending on your political perspective, that provides for the common welfare. Does that mean everybody has a right to a certain minimal standard of living? So when you look at those words, as I said to you earlier, they are easy to read, but they are complicated to interpret. What does it mean, provide for the common defense? That may be the easiest one. Keep America safe from external enemies. But what about internal enemies? Does it also apply there? So for your notes, gentlemen, put, in, put there the preamble contains the vision, the philosophy and the vision of the framers for what kind of a country they wanted America to be. The second part, the articles, the articles. The articles lay out in detail how the government, the federal government, will be set up and how it will run. So the articles establish how the federal government will be set up and how it will run. It establishes the powers of each branch of government and the limitations of each branch of government. All right, if I'm going too fast, tell me. I want to make sure you've got it clear in your notes. The Constitution establishes the qualifications to hold office. The qualifications for congressmen, for senators, for the president. It establishes how long that term of office should be for congressmen, for senators. I guess you could call those term limits. So it establishes then the powers, the duties, and the limitations of the branch. Article 1 covers Congress, the House and the Senate. How old do you have to be to be a congressman or a senator? How long do you serve in office? And what are your primary duties? Article two, the president. How old do you have to be to be president? Have to be born in the United States. How long do you, what are your duties? And it's interesting because article one is longer, article two is shorter than article one, and article three establishes the judicial branch, the courts. Article 3 sets up the courts. And Article 3 is shorter than Article 2. Article 2 is shorter than Article 1. 
What does that mean? When I look at it, it means the primary responsibility lies with Congress. Congress makes the laws. Put that in your notes, it's important. Congress makes the laws. The president carries out the laws passed by Congress. The president, gentlemen, doesn't make law. The president carries out the laws made by Congress. And the courts, the function of the courts, the main responsibility of the courts is to make sure that no law passed by Congress, and put this carefully in your notes, no law passed by Congress and carried out by the president violates the Constitution. No law passed by Congress, carried out by the president, violates the Constitution. That gentleman is a simplified overview of the Constitution of the United States the functions. The third part of the Constitution, preamble, articles, the third part, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights and the subject of our lecture this afternoon. Now gentlemen, as I go through these rights, if you have questions and comments about them, stop me and ask them. I don't want you to wait till the end of the class because you may find by the time, we may run out of time, or you may find by the time we're, we're done, you've forgotten the question you were going to ask anyway. So any of these, interrupt me whenever you want, and let's uh, uh, address your question, okay? The Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, gentlemen, were added onto the Constitution. That's why they're called amendments. And they were added on in 1791. They are over 220 years old, and they are still very, put in your notes, relevant today. Very relevant today. Yes, sir. What year were they added on? Again? Give me that again. What year was it? 1791. 1791. Constitution, 1789. Three years later, two years later, you have the Bill of Rights. Now, what are the Bill of Rights? The Bill of Rights, gentlemen, are your rights as an American, the protections that you have against government intrusion. The Bill of Rights the protections of Americans. In fact, it's actually wider than that. Anybody who's within the borders of the United States is protected by the Bill of Rights. So your protections against government abuse. This is not, the Bill of Rights does not protect you from your neighbor. It doesn't protect one citizen from another. 
it only protects you from the government. It limits what the government can do vis-a-vis -vis your freedoms, your rights. And of course, the architect of the Bill of Rights was Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson said, we need on the Constitution, amended to the Constitution, a clear list of what the rights of the common people are. Now, Hamilton, on the other hand, said, you don't need it. You don't need it. And so the dispute between Hamilton and Jefferson resulted in a compromise, and the compromise was we're going to have a list of 10 rights that every person in this country has, safeguards. All right, so let's take a look at those rights. Let's take a look first at amendment number one. Amendment number one, called the four freedoms. The four freedoms. And the four freedoms are freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of assembly. Religion, speech, press, and assembly. Now let's look at each one of those. And gentlemen, we could spend, believe me, if we start looking at all the cases throughout history that have come out of the First Amendment, we could spend the entire semester on the First Amendment alone, looking at all the cases and how they've affected American society and how over the years, 220 years, our perspectives have changed. And yet, the First Amendment still is relevant to today. Let's look at the first one, freedom of religion. Freedom of religion does not mean that you are free to do anything you want in the name of religion. It doesn't mean that. It means the government cannot make you go to church, to put it simply. The government, Congress, cannot pass a law establishing a religion, whether it's Catholicism or Protestantism or whether it's Judaism or Islam, and then say to you, every Sunday you've got to go to church. Now, you might take it for granted. Why is it such a big deal? Gentlemen, there are societies in the world where you pray five times a day, and if you don't, you're going to get your head cut off. I know from my own experience, when I was your age, I lived in Greece with my father. I have dual citizenship, both American and Greek. In 1968, there was a coup. The military took control in Greece. And I was in Athens living with my dad. And the government that came to power was a government of military men, colonels. And they looked at Greek society and they said, Greek society, we've taken control because Greek society is getting out of control. And the way to bring back the old values 
they said, every male and female under the age of 26 must go to church on Sunday. And if you're not in church on Sunday, you're going to be arrested. And so I can remember Sunday mornings going to church with my father, and there would be tanks in the streets of Athens. There would be armed soldiers. And if you gave them crap about going to church, they pull out a 45 and kneecap you. You know what a kneecap is? And a kneecap with a 45 means what, gentlemen? It means you're crippled for the rest of your life. They would kneecap you. And then the colonel said, the other problem with Greek society is you got too many young guys wearing beards. So it became against the law to have a beard. You could go to prison for wearing a beard. You had to be clean shaven. So gentlemen, we take freedom of religion as a, a given. But in many, many states, gentlemen, it isn't. In many areas of the world, it isn't. Okay? There is a national religion or there is a religion in place and you will adhere to it. In fact, some Middle Eastern countries operate under religious law. Do you know what religious law I'm talking about? Sharia. Okay. Sharia. All right. Freedom of religion. What else does freedom of religion mean? It means Congress cannot pass a law making you go to church and it also means that Congress cannot pass a law preventing you from worshiping the religion or the church in the church of your choice. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean in the name of religion you can do anything you want? Freedom of religion, like the others, like speech and press and assembly, are not absolute. Put that in your notes. These freedoms are not absolute. They are limited. And one of the first tests of freedom of religion came in the American West in the 18, late 1800s. Familiar with the Mormon church? The Mormon church back at Utah, the Mormon church back then believed in polygamy. That every Mormon man could have more than one wife. But American law forbade polygamy. So the Mormons challenged it under freedom of religion. And the courts ruled, no, you can practice your religion, but your religion cannot violate reasonable criminal laws. Look at today. If you look at today, in parts of New York and New Jersey, there are Muslim communities who say, we really should come under Sharia law. There are Jewish Orthodox communities who say we should come under the law of the Talmud. You know, earlier in the course, we discussed what two types of law. Remember, positive law, divine law. And how can they can come into conflict? And so put in your notes then, freedom of religion gives you the right to worship. 
so long as the way you worship does not violate criminal laws. Now, I'll give you another example. There was a, a religious group in, um, out of Miami. I forget the name of the group, but this was 2030, and you don't need to make notes on this, 20, 30 years ago. They said, during our religious services, we need to, they were, I think they were eating hallucinogenic mushrooms, because then we go into a, a state and we're better able to communicate with God. And of course, some of their, some of their practitioners were arrested and charged, convicted under uh, illegal drug use laws. And they appealed it and said, it's freedom of religion. And the courts were very clear. You cannot do, in the name of religion, things which violate the lo local norms. Yeah? How can they, how can they not do that with the government? Can, uh, how can the government experiment with those psychedelic drugs? Because there, there is, there's declassified documents of the government experimenting with psychedelic, like mushrooms, DMT, out west. How Give me that again, John. I missed it. Give me that again. Louder. Take your mask down for a second. Pull it down? Yeah. So, like, how can, how can they not do that, but the government... they? The people in Miami. Okay. But the government can experiment with those same drugs, like DMT and psychedelic mushrooms, because there's... Well, the government said to them, look, the local laws outlaw the use of this, whatever this mushroom was, okay? And you're using it, you see, in part of your religious ceremony. You can't do it. You're violating law. So, like, the government's using it, though, to experiment. All right, let me ask you another question. So there was I another smoke, case. I can't smoke, I mean, I don't smoke weed, but I can't smoke weed, but, the like, government officials can? John, there was another case, I forget the case, where a religious group, okay, religious group, were having uh, their ceremonies. And their, their ceremonies included sex with little kids. And they said, it's part of our religious experience. And the authorities arrested them, charged them, and said, no, you can't argue that you're using this as some kind of a religious experience. You can't hide under the First Amendment. As long as your religious practices come within the norms of society, don't violate its criminal laws, you're free to do what you want. But once they do, then you can't. All right, you clear on that? The main message, the main takeaway from this, this freedom of religion is that it is not absolute, okay? Congress cannot make you worship Congress cannot prevent you. They can't pass a law that makes you go to church. They can't pass a law that uh, prevents you from going to church. As long as your religious practices stay within the confines of society. I mean, imagine if you took that limitation off. If you said you can do anything you want so long as it's in the name of religion. So long as you say it's part of my religious experience, I can do it. Suppose you said human sacrifice is a part of our religious experience. Who sacrificed his son on the altar in the Old Testament? God. Yes, sir. So can we have sacrifice as a part of our religious experience? 
So again, are you clear on that? The limitations? Yes, sir. I know in New York City there's crowd gatherings of Orthodox Jews because they're practicing their religion. How does, um, I know that that violates uh, state violations under social distancing rules for New York State. How does that, how does this amendment kind of come into play? Blasio in New York's got a real problem on his hands. Because what is he going to do? The Orthodox, the Hasidic Jewish communities in Brooklyn and Queens are saying, hey, okay, we're going to have, we're going to meet together, we're going to have our ritual prayers, and God will take care of us. And de Blasio saying to the, what, what's, what's he going to, I mean, he's got a problem. What are you going to do? You're going to go out on the streets. Can you imagine the police arresting Orthodox Jews on the streets of New York? It'll be like what all over again? Nazi Germany. But at the same time, you can't be spreading the virus. You've got a public health crisis on your hands. So what do you do? It's a quandary. And what will happen, I predict, is there are going to be Jewish leaders probably who will be arrested. And as a result, they'll appeal and it'll go through the courts and it'll probably go to the Supreme Court. All right, let's move on now. Any more questions on religion, or do you want to move on? All right, let's go. Let's take a look now at freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, gentlemen, is not an absolute right. You cannot say whatever you want to say, no matter what. There are limitations. And there's a very famous case called Schenck. S-C-H-E-N, oh, it's Schenck here. Yeah, Schenck, Schenck versus the United States, S-C-H-E-N-C-H. -E this goes back to World War I. Schenck was a socialist. World War I broke out, and the United States got involved in World War I in 1917. And the army needed guys to join. So they started a campaign to have guys sign up. Before they started drafting them, they, saw, they tried to see if they could induce enough young men to join the army. Schenck is against the war. Schenck goes down to a recruiting station and he stands outside where these guys are lined up to go in and he says, don't go. Don't sign up. All you're going to wind up doing is dying for nothing. Don't do it. The police arrest Schenck. Schenck makes the argument. He's convicted. He appeals. His case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Schenck says, I have freedom of speech. I have a right to go out on the street. I have a right to speak out against the war. And I have a right to tell young men not to join up in the army to go abroad and to kill other people or be killed. Well, the head of the Supreme Court was one of the most famous justices of all times, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Holmes said, and his case, this case, Schenck versus the United States, is really the foundation for the freedom of speech. Schenck said, uh, excuse me, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the right to free speech is not absolute, is not absolute, 
and cannot be tolerated, cannot be tolerated if it presents a clear and present danger to society. Freedom of speech is not absolute. It cannot be tolerated in those instances where it presents a clear and present danger to society. And here's the most famous part of his quote. Holmes said, you cannot go in to a crowded movie theater and falsely yell what? Fire. Cause a stampede, people trampled to death, and then when you're arrested for it, turn around and say, I was only exercising my freedom of what? Speech. Now that's 1919. Over the years, freedom of speech has been interpreted by the courts to mean more than just speaking. More than just speaking. In the 1960s and 70s, high school students started wearing black armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War. School principals said to them, take off the black armband, okay? or we're going to suspend you from school. Kids refused to take it off. They got suspended. Parents sued. The courts, the cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled. Those students have a right to wear a black armband. It is another manifestation of what? Speech. It's another way of speaking. another way of speaking. So then, a few years later, you had people demonstrating and burning the American flag. And they got arrested for burning the American flag. And then the question became, you know, you're going to be convicted, you're going to do time for burning the flag. And the argument was, in burning the flag, it's my way of what? expressing my speech. Yeah, John. How does this tie in with a big tech company censoring people that they don't agree with? All right, give me this again, John. How does this tie in with like big tech companies like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat? They're censoring people they don't agree with politically and taking their content off their platform. So what they want to say can't John, be. John, that's a hot issue right Are you familiar with Snowden and the Snowden case? And there's a lot right now of controversy about, about these various face, Facebook and, uh, what is it, Twitter and, and all this. But, you know, one argument that they would give you is, you don't have to go on if you don't like it. You're free not to use it, see? So what we do with your data is up to us, because if you don't like don't don't get on. Nobody's forcing you to get on. Does that answer your question? You sure? All right, let's take a look at assembly, assembly, freedom of assembly. What does freedom of assembly mean? It means you have a right to hang around with people who think and feel the same way you do, 
and you have a right to protest with them against what you think the government is doing that's wrong. So freedom of assembly. You have the right to associate with people who think the way you do and to join with them in demonstrating against the government for what you think is wrong. Yeah, John. Unless it presents clear and present danger against society, right? Yeah, John. All right, let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Back in the 1970s, what's, this, what's that place in Illinois? Um, Skokie, is it? Skokie, Illinois? Okay. Skokie, Illinois, back in 19, I think it was 1976 uh, or 77, I've got it somewhere in my notes here. The American Nazi Party, they remember when we did the political spectrum, we dealt with neo-Nazis. The American Nazi Party is way out on the right wing. And remember, the further out you go in the political spectrum, the more inclined to what are you? Violence. To do what? bring about political change. The American Nazi Party filed for a permit to march through, uh, uh, what is it, Skokie? Skokie, Illinois, on Adolf Hitler's birthday, and to march through the Jewish section of town in full Nazi uniforms. The city said, no, we're not giving you the permit. And the Nazis said, you're violating our freedom of assembly, and on top of that, our freedom of speech, because by marching on Adolf Hitler's birthday, we're expressing our political view. And it was denied. They sued. And you know what the American Nazi Party did? They got the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, to defend them. Now, the ACLU, are you familiar with it? The American Civil Liberties Union is a very liberal group made up essentially of lawyers, and they take cases that they feel are right, and they argue them pro bono. They argue them for free. The Nazis on the right go to the American Civil Liberties Union on the left, and they get a Jewish lawyer. And they say to him, we want you to argue our case. And a Jewish lawyer now, who's going to argue a case for the neo-Nazis to march through the Jewish section of town on Adolf Hitler's birthday. And you know what the lawyer did? He did it. He argued it. He said, everything the neo-Nazis stand for disgusts me. But it's not about them. It's about their right to do what under the Constitution, under the Bill of Rights? To march and to express their views. Just because I don't like their views doesn't mean they can't express them. He argued the case for them. Won the case. And then the neo-Nazi party said, oh, hell, we're not going to march anyway. We'll march in Chicago. And they marched in Chicago. 
Again, give me an example recently where extreme right-wing groups wanted to meet together to demonstrate, to assemble, and it turned violent, and it's ripped this country apart. Yes, sir. The Black Lives Matter movement. Where? The Black Lives Matter movement. Pull your thing down, so I have to. The Black Lives Matter movement. All right, but, but where? Black Lives Matter was involved, but where did, where did, where did it sit? Where, where did the fires burn? What about Charlottesville, Virginia? You got it, John. Yes, sir. Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, that was what two years ago. The neo-Nazis, other right-wing groups wanted to meet. What were they protesting? Con taking down Confederate war war monuments. So who showed up? Antifa on the left showed up. Black Lives Matter showed up. The two groups clashed. Cops can't deny him the right. Free speech, freedom of assembly, means that you are free to say what you want so long as you stay within those parameters. Even though you might not like what the other side is saying, they have a right to what? Say it. That, gentlemen, is what makes America great. Yes, sir? What happens when it comes to, like, destruction of property? Give me that again. Like, what happens when it comes to, like, destruction of property and stuff like that? The, the destruction of property is, I mean, that's still that's against the law, okay? It's against the law. But invariably, these groups, when that happens, when the violence breaks out, their excuse always is, on the left or the right, it was what? Self-defense. We were defending ourselves. Yes, sir? Did the government have the right to uh, go into Waco, Texas? Pull that down, John. Did the government have the right to do what they did to go into Waco, Texas? With the Branch Davidians? <clears throat> John Waco is... All right, you, you, you familiar with Waco and the Branch Davidians? Branch Davidians, what was that? What was that, Koresh? Yeah. Koresh. Branch Davidians were a religious group headed by this guy, Koresh, who said he was a messiah, okay? And he had a compound in Texas, in Waco, and he was holding religious services, and he had, I don't know, what did he have, a dozen wives? And the argument is that he was having sex with like little 12 and 13-year-old girls who were part of the religious group and stockpiling all these weapons. The feds went in there because of the weapons violation and also because the argument was that he was having illicit or sexual relations with, with young, underage girls, and that's against the law. So you have weapons violation and that one. Um, it turned bad. There was a siege, and uh, I think something like 80 or 85 Branch Davidians were killed in the siege, as well as some federal agents. Now, yeah. All right, questions on that one? All right, let's look at the last one, freedom of press. Freedom of the press. Freedom of the press is extremely important. Is it quarter to five? It's quarter to five, and I haven't even gotten out of the First Amendment. You see what I mean when I told you we could spend a whole semester? All right, freedom of press, the right for newspapers, journals, to write about politics, to write about what's going on. Without censorship from the government. 
And in recent years, there have been two very controversial cases. Because the press argues we should be able to write whatever we want so that Americans can read the material and understand what's going on in the country, politically, economically, sociologically. And you can't do that if you're going to have censorship. And gentlemen, most of the world has press censorship. Now, there are two interesting cases here. One deals with pornography, and the other one deals with a hydrogen bomb. In the 1960s, up until the 1960s, pornography was against the law. If you had porno, you could be arrested and sentenced to prison. And this group started trying to sell pornography, and it wound up going before the Supreme Court. And their argument was, if I want to distribute a porno magazine, that's my right under the freedom of press. And the Supreme Court agreed with them. And pornography became legal under the doctrine of freedom of the press. The second case, is, is, to me, is really interesting. A magazine printed an edition called How to Build Your Own Hydrogen Bomb. And they printed step by step. And the federal government, I think it was the Atomic Energy Commission or the, one of the federal agencies got wind of it. The magazines hadn't been distributed yet. They were being housed in a warehouse. The feds went to the government, they went to the court and they said, give us an injunction so we can seize that, raid that warehouse, seize all those copies before they hit the stands. The publisher, I think it was called Progressive Publishing, the USA versus Progressive Publishing. The publisher said, whoa, we got freedom of press. We have a right. We didn't use any top secret stolen information to do this. We have a right to print a magazine, how to build your own hydrogen bomb. And it went to the Supreme Court. And the government's argument was, how likely is it that some guy's going to go down to his basement and build a hydrogen bomb. Not very likely. But what is likely is that other countries will buy that magazine and it will help them advance their nuclear programs so they can get nuclear weapons faster. So the federal government argued we need to seize and destroy those magazines. Court agreed. There is a clear and present what? Danger. All right, gentlemen, that winds up the First Amendment. I can't believe it's, we've gone through 45 minutes, but let me do the Second Amendment and then we'll call it a day. The Second Amendment. An extremely controversial amendment today. It's an amendment, gentlemen, they're actually, give me the issues that you think are tearing the society apart today? Abortion. Abortion? What else? Gun laws. Gun rights. Affordable Care Act. All three of those are at the forefront of the tensions in our society today. And all three of them are going to come right out of constitutional Bill of Rights interpretations. All right, what does 
the Second Amendment say? I know that John has memorized it by heart. What's it say, John? Pull, pull your thing down. Yeah, somebody else. Oh, come on. You're from South Carolina, right? Isn't that the first thing you I got? I mean, I don't, know it, I don't know it word by word. Don't work. All right, I'll give it to you word by word. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the safety and security of a state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. All right, again, you can look in your textbooks. The back of the book has the Constitution. Take a look at that amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security and well-being of a state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What does that mean? The NRA, National Rifle Association, which is where on the political spectrum? To the right. Says it's simple. You just take the second half of the amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What does keep arms mean? I have a right to have own a weapon. What does bear arms mean? I have a right to carry it. Okay. Conservatives say every American has a God-given right. Yeah, John. A lot of liberal politicians uh, want a forced buyback of guns from the government. Does that violate this amendment? No. They're not making you turn your gun in. They're forcing, they're forcing you to give. They're they're forcing you to give them your guns, but they will pay you for those for your guns. But you have to give them the guns. Give me one example where they are forcing you to turn in your gun. Not doing it right now, but that's something they've talked about wanting to do in the future. Who talked about that? Left politicians. All right. Liberals. <laughs> Mr. Previs. I am not a liberal. I never said I was a liberal, John. I know. I didn't say you did. All right. So let's take a look at that amendment. What does it mean? Does that amendment mean that you have a right to own and carry a gun? Or does that amendment mean you have a right to a gun if you are a part of the militia. Now the modern term for a militia today is National Guard. If you're a member of the Florida National Guard or the South Carolina National Guard, then liberals say then you have a right to have a gun which is issued to you by the National Guard. Conservatives say no, 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 no. You have a right to have a gun. You have a right to own it. You have a right to carry it. And that, and there's some interesting cases there. Because up until 1939, the courts ruled there is an associative requirement to that amendment. So in other words, you have a right to a gun as long as you're associated with a militia. Then we had in the 19, uh, in 2008 or 9, Heller versus the District of Columbia. The Heller decision, H-E-L-L-E-R. There, Heller sued the District of Columbia. District of Columbia, which by the way has more police than any city in the United States, said, you cannot own a gun, a handgun, unless one, you have a permit, and two, or two, you're a member of the police force. 
or the FBI or the Secret Service or the U.S. Capitol Police. Heller sued. And Heller argued, I should be able to have a handgun in my house to defend myself. I don't have to be associated with the D.C. National Guard to own a gun. And the Supreme Court ruled, you're right, you don't. The Supreme Court ruled gun ownership is an individual right, not an associative right. So you have, and they overturned D.C.'s rule and said that you can have, uh, you can own a gun. Now the most recent case, which is before the courts now, comes out of New York City. Because of Heller, New York City was forced, New York City had the Sullivan Law, one of the toughest anti-gun laws on the books, and one of the highest murder rates. New York decided, okay, because of the Heller decision, we're going to have to let people have handguns. But you have to have a permit. The handgun must stay in your house, or it must stay in your business. You can't transport it. If you get caught transporting it, you can be put in jail. And now the, the uh, opponents of that law have taken it to the Supreme Court and said it's restricted. If I want to take my handgun from my home to my second home out on Long Island, I should be able to do that. If I want to take my handgun and go to a shooting range, I should be able to do that. And that law now is up before the courts, and we'll see how they're going to rule on that. All right, gentlemen, I think my time is just about up. Any questions? Yes, sir. Are United States citizens allowed under this amendment to keep and bear all types of arms, or are there limits on what type of gun you can have? No, I mean, it, it, it's just set of arms, right? And so now you've got, well, the federal government, past cases have ruled. The federal government has a right to regulate certain highly destructive firearms, a machine gun, for instance, fully automatic weapons, okay? I mean, uh, you know, rocket-propelled grenades. So, but again, if you look at it, you know, it, it's got to be, it's going to have to be adjudicated by the courts when someone challenges it. All right, gentlemen, any questions? Yes, sir. I understand that, obviously, Gun laws. Joe, pull it down so I can hear I understand with gun laws, it's to, uh, obviously to Americans it applies that they have the right to keep and bear arms. But how about a foreign citizen that comes into the country? Can they? How about what, now, Joe? A foreign citizen that comes into the U.S. Can a foreign citizen? Correct. All right, the courts have ruled that you have a right to a gun, but District of Columbia, wherever you're living, has a right to demand that you get a permit for it and they have a right to set the requirements for a permit. I'll tell you an interesting case. We got time? I did an interesting case for the Sixth Judicial Circuit. Mother was being sued by her son. The mother's like 80-something years old, and the son is like 60 years old. So I get the case. And I said, the, the guy is suing his mother for $3,000 and or the return of all of his guns. So I said to him in court, I said, well, what's the issue here? He said, my mother, when I was drunk, came into my trailer and took all my handguns back to her house, locked them up, and she won't give them back to me. So I said to the mother, well, 
do you have his guns? And she said, yes. And she said to me, Mr. Previs, can I talk to you in private, please? I said, sure. So we left the courtroom. We went outside to a foyer. She says to me, he's an alcoholic. He's got a plate in his head. He sometimes, he's seeing a VA psychiatrist. He has hallucinations. Mr. Previs, he's dangerous. So I thought to myself, well, can we use that to take his guns away? So I said to the clerk, put his name in the database for Florida and let me see his arrest and conviction record. And the clerk spits out a long list. The guy's been arrested like, I don't know, 10, 12 times. And the arrests all have to deal with guns. He's either walking outside of his trailer and shooting his gun. Some kids were making noise, so he went out there and shot off the gun. The police came, they took the gun away from him, they arrested him. But he had a right to get all his guns back. Why? Because Florida law says you have to be convicted of a crime. He had been arrested multiple times, but never convicted. Either the state's attorney dismissed the charge, or the judge found him not guilty. So because he had no convictions on his record, we had to return the guns to him. There's no choice. Because Florida law says it's convictions that prohibit you from having the gun, not arrests. There's no mental health. Give me that again, John. There's no like mental health, like there's nothing that can stop him from owning the guns because of his. Because his, his mental condition? Yeah. I said to him, look, okay, and I was, I was out of line. I said to him, look, why don't we do this? I said, are you seeing a psychiatrist? He said, yeah, I see a VA psychiatrist. I said, why don't you do this? Let your mom hold the guns, come back in 60 days, and bring me a letter from the psychiatrist that says you're okay, and you can have the guns, and we'll give them back to you. Well, you think any psychiatrist, any doctor is going to write a letter? No. But he was happy with it. He left, never saw him again. So I don't know whether he got the guns back. How does that make you out of place? How does that what? You said you, said you were out of place by doing that. How yeah. so? Because legally, John, he had a right to those guns. But I had to balance positive law, which said he had a right to those guns, with what? Natural law, which said to me, it's wrong. It's wrong to give him the guns. All right, gentlemen, enjoyed it. Wednesday, why don't we look at the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. Enjoyed it, gentlemen. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.